All right, well, good morning. Uh, you know, there's a, a thing that happens most Sundays where, like, when the scripture's being read, my mind goes totally blank, and I'm like, I don't remember anything. Uh, so if you want a good adrenaline rush, uh, you can step into that at any point, um, but eventually it comes back, hopefully. Um, well, today is a little bittersweet. Uh, this is my last Sunday preaching before uh, our baby's born. So Allie is uh, 37 weeks pregnant tomorrow. And PAX came at 37 weeks and three days. So if you see us on like a little on edge today, uh, that's probably why. Um, so hopefully we'll see you next week. But we thought it would be easier to uh, plan as if we won't, I won't be here uh, rather than try and scramble last second to find somebody to preach. So again, hopefully we see you next week. But if not, uh, we will be in good hands regardless. So, um, so yeah, uh, as we get ready to jump into our sermon today, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we are uh, grateful for this, um, this gift uh, of today and the gift that is this community. God, we're uh, grateful for the chance to, to be gathered together today. And God, we're grateful for the gift of uh, technology uh, and the gift of Zoom and that we can uh, still be together even if we can't physically be together. Um, God, we're grateful for this profound mystery that is your spirit that meets us here, both in the sanctuary and in our homes, on our computers. And we're grateful that this gift of your spirit is uniting us, drawing us together, doing this divine, mysterious thing among us. And so now as we turn to the scriptures and wrestle with them together, we yield ourselves to your spirit. We ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have jumped over a lot in uh, John's story of Jesus from last week to this week. So we went from uh, John 13, we skipped over 14, 15, 16, 17, and now we are in John 18. So we skipped over four chapters completely, but these four chapters uh, cover the span of one evening, which means that these are like really rich, dense chapters in the story of Jesus. Um, this section of, of John's gospel is what's often referred to as the upper room discourse. And uh, within the upper room discourse, we, we, we have this really sort of like intimate last few moments of, w- between Jesus and his disciples. And we as readers are, are in some ways like privileged to, to read this. Like this isn't something that we normally get to see between uh, uh, a group of people, but it's as if the curtain is pulled back and we're getting a glimpse on some privileged access to this interaction here. Uh, in some ways, it can also feel a bit like uh, at the end of a semester when a professor sits down and goes, okay, so we are really far behind and we have to cover this material in the last two weeks, so we're just going to fly through it get you familiar with it, and hopefully you figure it out on the way, that sort of thing. Like, that's kind of how uh, the upper room can feel at times. But it's this, this intimate moment between Jesus and the disciples as he's, he's leaving them with his parting words. And then we're told uh, that the disciples and Jesus get up, they leave, they go, and they find themselves in a garden. And it's here that Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, betrays him. Uh, and Jesus has tipped off the, the soldiers, the police, that Jesus will be where he is. And they come and they question him. And they want to like capture him at this point. Peter rips out his sword. He cuts off a dude's ear. Jesus says, hey now, Peter, put your sword back. And then from there, we begin to read in John 18, starting in verse 12. So the soldiers, their officers, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. 
First, they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside the gate so that the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke with the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it warming themselves. Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. Then the high priest questioned Jesus and his disciples about his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I, what I said. A little snarky Jesus here, yeah? When he said this, one of the police, picking up on his snark here, uh, struck him in the face saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if I've spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they asked him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, the cock crowed. This is a really sad painful, uh, difficult story in the life of Jesus. Um, But we recognize that this story sets us off into like a really sad, painful, difficult chapter in the life of Jesus. And this particular story that begins this sad, difficult, painful chapter is one that's filled with things like uh, betrayal, uh, filled with things like violence, filled with things like denial. Um, But before we get into the story, another story. January 1st, 2021 was a good day because it was the first day of 2021, right? And 2020 was, well, 2020, right? 2020 was one of the more difficult years for for most, if not all of us, of our lives, right? And uh, that's not to say that there weren't a few bright spots, right? Like my son was born in 2020. Like that was a big bright spot in my life, right? Um, But it feels like some of the bright spots were maybe fewer and uh, less frequent than in other years. So, because the bright spots were fewer and less frequent than other years, I had one particular bright spot that you might judge me for, but remember, it was 2020, all right? We're like grasping at straws at times. One of the bright spots for me was how Notre Dame football did in, in that season. So, Notre Dame had a really good season, one of the top four, if you will, and made it into the college football playoff, which was playing on January 1st, 2021. Now, the only problem with this scenario was that they were playing arguably the best team in the country in Alabama, who would go on to not just be arguably the best team, but definitively the best team by beating Ohio State in the championship. So I went into this game certainly not confident, but hopeful, right? It's a good Christian virtue. Now, it was a good thing that I wasn't too too confident heading into this game because they got totally destroyed. Mind you, so did Ohio State, all right? Now, uh, because I'm a good husband and a good father, I said, if I'm going to commit myself to three hours of watching this game, I will also watch PAX. So we uh, brought in toys to begin this game into our TV room, and he was playing, and we were doing fine. But the problem was, PAX, who was like 10 months old at this time, was getting more and more mobile and more and more curious. 
So the longer the game went on, the more he was like not content to just stay set, but was uh, moving much more and like discovering much more. The problem with this is that as the game was going on, was continuing to go on, I was agitated and growing more and more agitated. And if you've ever spent any time around a toddler, you know that more mobility and more curiosity does not mix well with agitation and more agitation. So a moment late in the game when I'm angry and I think a lot of 2020 is just coming out in this moment, Pax starts to crawl and reach for our TV power cord. And I reach out and grab his hand off of it, and I rip him back, and I go, buddy! And I look down, and his little body shakes. He looks up in my eyes, and for the first time in his young life, I see fear in his eyes because of me. And for the first time in his life, I see shame in his face because of me. And it was a moment where I was like, I'd done gone messed up. (laughs) Perhaps you can relate to this. Uh, Maybe it doesn't involve you yelling at your children, but maybe it involves you yelling at other people while your children are present. So maybe you're driving down the highway and somebody cuts you off and you roll down your window and throw out not such a kind hand gesture or mutter something under your breath and you look up and go, oh, there are innocent faces listening and watching me. (laughs) Or perhaps you say that thing, right? You're in a conversation with somebody and it's lighthearted, you're joking, and the joking continues to like get progressively more like intense, right? And then you, you say that joke and like you see their posture change and you're like, oh, <laughs> I went too far, didn't I? Or perhaps that thing that you say was actually intentional and it was f- intentionally filled with venom and it was to that person who's in your life that you love and care about deeply and this person has, has opened themselves up to you, been vulnerable, exposed their deepest insecurities and you knew that that thing that you were saying in that heated conversation would dodge all of their armor and get to the core of who they were and as you see them slump, you realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> or perhaps it comes in a morning where after the fog of the night before wears off, you begin to realize like you step back into some addictive patterns or behaviors that you thought that you were long past. Whatever it is, like we have this moment where we realize like we we done gone messed up. And then there's there's almost always like two things that 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 follow that. The first one is is this realization that I I I responded or did something that I shouldn't have or wish that I hadn't or thought that I was better than or further down the road than. And then almost always immediately following that is the sense of shame. Anybody else experience that from time to time? And as we begin to think about John chapter 18, I wonder if this is a bit of like what Peter is experiencing in this moment when the rooster crows. Now, again, uh, because we jumped over so much of John, like we, we missed out on a key detail of the story. And that is that back in John chapter 13, Jesus actually predicted that this would happen. So Jesus, as Jesus does in John, is talking in this weird cryptic sort of language. And he's like, you know, there's going to be a time where I'm going someplace that you can't follow, meaning like leaving this earthly realm into this heavenly realm. And Peter, of course, like understandably confused, is like, what do you mean you're going to a place that I can't follow you? I'm going to follow you everywhere, Jesus. And Jesus goes, well, Peter, actually, you won't. Because uh, this very evening before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like caught off guard. And in Matthew's version of the story, Peter like actually gets defensive. And he's like, what do you mean, Jesus? I will follow you to the death. I will not deny you. And yet, what does Peter end up doing? (laughs) He denies 
Jesus. And I wonder if in this moment, Peter is, is having this sort of reaction that we do, this, this initial like, realization that he'd done gone messed up, followed by the sense of like, oh, I, didn't, I, 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 I responded in a way that I shouldn't have or wished I hadn't or thought that I was better than. And I wonder if this sense of shame began to like flood into his very soul. I assume that it does, because I think what John, our author here, is inviting us to do is to, to step into Peter's shoes, to read ourselves into the story of Peter, and to begin to, to feel in our very bones the way that Peter perhaps is feeling in his very bones in this story. There's an author and a, a pastor by the name of Brian Zahn who writes, uh, reflecting on this story, I suppose we've all heard the rooster crow, the rooster of conviction that alerts us to how we fail to live up to our lofty promise to faithfully follow Jesus. And we've all known the bitter tears of self-reproach induced by our failures. Yet this is one of the things that I love about the Bible. It makes no attempt to cover up the sins of its seminal figures. We know about the crimes of Moses and David. We know about the failures of Abraham and Elijah. We know about the sins of Peter and Paul. Yet Moses and David, Abraham and Elijah, Peter and Paul are still presented as heroes of the faith. In the Bible, all the saints are sinners. And we who are sinners called to be saints should find comfort in this. It's not sin that disqualifies us as disciples of Jesus, but quitting. Peter denied Jesus, but he didn't quit. and He was forgiven. When you hear the rooster crow, you may weep bitterly for a while, but don't give up. Don't quit. The rooster's crow of conviction doesn't signal the end of your journey. It just helps you get back on track. What I appreciate about this quote is that um, it acknowledges that for, for Peter when he comes to this rooster crow moment, that it brings him to like, something like a crossroads. And it presents with him these two options of like he can choose to quit, he can choose to say that like, he has been disqualified because of this, or he can use it as a moment to like, get back on track, to, to, to be a bit of like a course correction. And I think for, for you and for me and for we and us, I think when we have these sorts of rooster crow mo- moments in our lives that we too face a similar sort of crossroads. And when the rooster crows in our life, we too have a decision to make. And so when we have these moments, I think it's helpful for us to ask, like, when the rooster crows, will we allow it to bring us to a place of conviction or a place of condemnation? Here's what I mean by this. Um, so we have this like rooster crow moment, this realization like a done gone messed up. And I think conviction is the first sort of impulse that comes with that. This, this sense, this realization like I, I, I've done something or responded in a way that I shouldn't have or wish that I hadn't or thought that I was better than. But I think this, this sense of condemnation is this thing that follows it, this sense of like shame that, that, that follows the sense of conviction. And I... I want to suggest that I think that the sense of like conviction is actually a good thing. I think conviction is a, a healthy thing in our life, and I think it, it plays into this formation of who we are becoming. Because what we have with conviction is this realization like, oh, I messed up. <laughs> that wasn't a good choice. And what this, sense of, or what this realization that I've messed up can do is bring us to a place of like acknowledging it. Or to use a really churchy word, confession. <laughs> confession to God, confession to the person that we failed, confession to others who we trust in our life. 
And after we acknowledge it, after we confess it, it can lead us to another churchy word, which is repentance, which is literally just a turning, turning off of the path that, or a turning from the, the, the path that we've strayed from back to the path that we've been invited to, this path of, of love, this way of love, this way of life. And after we've confessed, after we've repented, we can begin to experience this forgiveness of God that's been present this entire time, even if we didn't know it. So I think conviction can actually be a good thing. I think it can actually bring about fruit in our life. But condemnation, on the other hand, I don't think that that's a good thing. I think it's actually a really bad thing. <laughs> because what condemnation is, is like the sense of shame. And if you know anything about shame, you know that shame brings about these feelings of like alienation. And what shame wants to do is isolate us from other people. And what shame does in us is it begins to speak to the very core of who we are is that we are worthless and that we are incapable of receiving things like love and belonging. Now the good news of John is that he's already told us up to this point that Jesus and thus God have no desire to deal with anything of condemnation. So going all the way back to the beginning of John, in John chapter 3, we come to perhaps the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Did you know that Jesus says more than just this? Who knew it, right? The very next thing that Jesus says is, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, I think one of the ways that uh, Jesus goes about saving us is by showing us what God is like, revealing to us the heart of God, the character of God, the nature of God. And what we see throughout the life of Jesus is that as he talks about God and as he represents who God is, he shows us that God is loving that God is kind, that God is compassionate, that God is gracious, that God is generous, and that God is forgiving. And so we come to this moment in John 3.16 where Jesus says that those who believe this, and remember when Jesus says belief, he doesn't mean like rearranging our mental furniture, but he means more, something more along the lines of like giving ourselves to. So those who believe this, those who give themselves to this reality that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is compassionate, that God is gracious, that God is generous, that God is ultimately forgiving, those who give themselves to this reality aren't condemned because they're swimming in the reality of how things are. They've stepped into the stream of this love of God and they know that condemnation is, has no part of God's nature. But those who don't believe, those who have not given themselves to this reality, stand on the banks of the stream and are condemned already because they've refused or have chosen not to give themselves up to this reality that this is who God is. Loving, kind, compassionate, gracious, generous, and forgiving. See, God has no interest in condemnation. God has no business or is not in the interest of starting a business in condemnation because we as human beings have the market cornered on that one. God has no interest in it because we do a good enough job of condemning ourselves and those around us. And so when we have these moments where we hear the rooster crow, we ask ourselves, like, will we allow it to bring us to a place of conviction or a place of condemnation? Now, fortunately for Peter, uh, he has... Uh, 
this isn't the end of his story with Jesus, but rather he has a moment of like what we might call redemption with Jesus on the other side of the resurrection. And so uh, in John 21, we read that after the resurrection, Jesus interacts with his disciples as a whole, but has yet, not yet interacted with Peter individually. So it's kind of like a moment where you have a, some beef with a friend and you go out to dinner with a group of your friends and you're like, I don't know, are we cool? Like, eh, we haven't actually talked one-on-one. You know, it's kind of awkward sort of thing. I think that's what's happening here. But then uh, Jesus, eventually pulls Je- Jesus eventually pulls Peter off to the side. And we read, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he said to him for the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And at the end of this conversation, Jesus said to him, follow me. This is a strange interaction with Jesus and Peter because Jesus asked Peter three times, do you, do you love me? And Peter every time answers, yes, Lord, of course I love you. And like to the point that Peter like gets a f- uh, upset and offended. And yet, like, I, don't, I, I wonder why Jesus asked Peter three times. Is it perhaps that like, Jesus needs Peter to prove to Jesus that Peter loves Jesus? Or is Peter asking or is Jesus asking Peter if he loves him three times for Peter to prove it to Peter himself? See, condemnation will tell us that we are done, that we are disqualified, that we have been removed from the party, that we've lost our invitation. But conviction, on the other hand, like wants us to, to scoop ourselves up, to dust ourselves off, and to step back on, on track and begin to walk in this way of life and this way of love. Notice that Jesus does not respond to Peter with any sort of condemnation. Jesus does not say, you're done, you're disqualified, get out of my sight. But rather what Jesus does is indeed want conviction to bring about the fruit of conviction in Peter's life. For him to begin to like step back on this way of life, to step back onto this way of love that Jesus has invited him onto. And notice that the end of this conversation has no hint of condemnation because Jesus ends this conversation the same way that Jesus began their very, uh, the very beginning of their relationship with this invitation of follow me. No sense of you're done, no sense of you're disqualified, but a sense of like, let's pick you back up, let's dust you off, and let's begin to walk on this path again. Now again, I think it's good for us to read ourselves in Peter's story here. Because Jesus doesn't just meet Peter on the other side of resurrection, but I think Jesus also meets us on the, or on the other side of these rooster crow moments, but I, I think Jesus also meets us on the other side of our rooster crow moments. And just as though Jesus had nothing uh, to do with condemnation with Peter, I don't think Jesus has anything to do with condemnation for us. But like Peter, uh, Jesus does want the fruit of conviction to, uh, to do its thing in our life, to be this reminder to step back onto this way of love, this way of life that Jesus has been inviting us onto time and time again. Now, I don't know about you, I have never woken up and like had a conversation with Jesus on the beach on the other side of like a done messed up moment. (laughs) 
But I think that's where you and I get to like step into this space, to be the community of Jesus or to be the, the body of Jesus, if you will. And so when we have these moments of like we done gone messed up and we begin to like share this with one another, may we not be a community of condemnation that like adds alienation onto people that, that wants to condemn people that pushes them further into isolation, becoming the self-fulfilling prophecy of why people don't acknowledge their faults. But rather, may we be a community of conviction, which like is honest with one another, but also like radically compassionate, radically generous, radically gracious with one another. And when somebody admits their faults to us, rather than responding with, why would you do that? We can respond with, yeah, I've done that. (laughs) Here's an open hand. Let me help you up. Let me dust you off. Let me put my arm around you and let's stumble after Jesus together. My prayer for us is that um, you would know that God is not interested in condemnation. That in a long litany of things that we know about God, that God is loving, kind, compassionate, gracious, generous, and forgiving, that you would know that condemnation is nowhere on that list. And my prayer for us is that the Spirit would empower us to be a community, certainly not of condemnation, but a community of conviction that meets one another where we are and these places where we've fallen short, the places where like, we've, we haven't responded the way that we thought that we wanted to, and would help each other up, dust each other off, wrap our arms around one another, and say, let's stumble after Jesus together. Amen. Uh, as a closing prayer for us, um, uh, Brian Zahn, whose quote we read earlier, um, uh, uh, has a, uh, a chapter where he talks about this interaction between Peter and Jesus, and he ends the chapter with this prayer. So I invite you to read this out loud uh, together with me. Lord Jesus, we have all heard the rooster crow and shared our bitter tears because of our failures. Forgive us and restore us that we might help heal our brothers and sisters. Amen.